Welcome to Sophisticated Property Investing, a podcast brought to you by Ethical Property Partners, the experts in sophisticated property investment. Ladies and gents, welcome to this episode of the Sophisticated Property Investor podcast with me, your host, Frank Fleck, uh, with the amazing Susanna Cole from The Good Property Company. Welcome, Susanna. How are you? Very good indeed. And I'm joining you from Barcelona in Spain today, which is probably why we can't do it in person. Your team said you're in Spain. I didn't know you're in Barcelona. I love Barcelona. So what are you doing there? Holiday, working? I live here half in Bristol and half in Barcelona. I own an apartment here and a, and a house in Bristol. Ah, perfect. I only knew about the Bristol base. So uh, that's brilliant. Is it six months there, six months home? Or is it every other weekend? How do you do it? Uh, no, I try to do like three months at a time and learn Spanish. I'm trying to get bilingual I live nine minutes from the sea so like I'll go to the gym and then I'll go and have a dip in the sea and then come back and do some work it's very nice and it's a very simple life as well because I'm in a lovely neighborhood called Pobla now which is really close to the sea and it's an old industrial neighborhood so right out my window is an old industrial chimneys and they're conserving all of those textile chimneys but it's a real kind of you know on every on every street there's a Pilates and a yoga studio so it's that kind of Brooklyn vibe out here but it's very simple very simple gentle life bought obviously with property profits absolutely I love it that sounds amazing I didn't know we had Spanish culture in common Susanna so I love Spanish I am learning to speak Spanish I've a company in Costa Rica uh spent spent a bit of time out there so uh, yeah love it in fact I'm in Spain next month, just for a long weekend. Fab. I'm learning Spanish at mom, uh, La Casa del Papel. Uh, so, <laughs> but anyway, we, we digress, I think, for people. Spanish audience will love it, though. They'll be really, they'll be really chill. Cool. So for the people that don't know, Susanna, I'll be honest, you and I have met, I was looking back, or thinking back, rather, for about all of five minutes at a recent Expert Empires event within the last six months. But prior to that, I, I knew of you. I knew some, I'd met some of your clients, but we had never met. We'd never collaborated on anything, um, which is amazing given we're about two hours apart uh, from where I am and where you are. So um, how about you tell the, the guys who Susanna Cole is? Sure. Well, a parent, my children are now grown up. So my 26-year-old lives around the corner and my daughter lives in Bristol property investor of kind of 50 well I started officially I started officially in 2008 literally listened to Lehman Brothers crash and then went hey this sounds like a great time to buy property and my I think like many of us my initial plan was purely I was head of household I had two gorgeous responsibilities to look after and so I couldn't understand this notion of having to work. I mean, I had corporate jobs. You know, I, I used to run Kiss, the radio station, but I'm very uncool because I didn't recognize Rihanna when she came to the studio. I literally went, who's that? <laughs> so although I had really interesting jobs, they were FTSE 100. They had huge requirements for commitment. And that doesn't match with being a parent, especially when you're the, the sole parent at home. My pull to property was like many people's, which is time and money freedom, particularly to focus around, I want to spend time with the people I love more than anything. And I also don't want to have the kind of same looming money worries that I had when I was very young. And I also don't understand pensions. Why would I stop work and then only have a third of my money? And why would I hand my money over to somebody else for 40 years? Because yeah, that'll really work, won't it? So I had these um, rebellious streaks, I think is the best way to do it. Started buying property myself, ran out of money like so many of us thought, well, I'm not stopping. So how do I do it? I'd got the knack of buying discounted deals. So I brought in investors really quite quickly. Obviously, they're all paid back now. And then I went, well, okay, if I'm if I'm bringing in deals uh, and, and doing deals with investors, what happens if it goes wrong? Hang on, I need a second cash generating strategy. Almost less for me and more to insure them, if you want to call it, as like a, a little bit of a kind of backup insurance. So I started deal packaging. I started joint venture flipping. I bought my own property portfolio. And in the course of doing that, turned it into quite a systematic business. So we did over 200 deals in four, in four and a half years. So we were going apace. And I obviously bought quite a lot of those. I flipped a lot of those and then packaged quite a lot of those onto other investors. So I now have a property portfolio, having done enough deals 
to not just kind of go, okay, I know the theory of actually how you run deals, but also to have systematically observed the patterns and then to put on real systematic processes. And then years ago, somebody asked me, you know, could you be kind enough to teach me? And I was like, really? Okay. So I started an education business, found I really enjoyed it. I get great enjoyment of watching other people succeed. Um, that moved online, got a YouTube channel with almost 2 million views. So it just sort of grew. It grew out of the statistical ability to understand the processes. I had no idea that we started almost at the same time then in property. Isn't that a coincidence? I got my first paycheck in 2006 and I'd already offered on my first house and the mortgage broker had, had chosen the product with me, but he needed my pay slip. So I got my pay slip. I remember getting it, taking it to the broker like he was in the back office of an estate agency and and then started the conveyancing on a property I'd already uh, had accepted. That was in 06, bought my first buy to let in 07 and quit my job teaching July 07, just before I opened my own estate agency in November 07, which was just as Lehman Brothers happened and everything, uh, which is interesting that you and I both saw that same opportunity and, and got, uh, well, mine wasn't by design actually, mine was a hunger to get into property and then fortuitous timing, probably actually it didn't help me that much for a couple of reasons. <laughs> One, I opened an estate agency rather than started investing. That was a really bad move and an awful time, probably worst month in a decade, November 07. Congratulations, though. I know. Yeah, yeah. We were losing. I remember going from a, a salary of £1,400 a month take home to losing £5,000 a month. And I was working 13 days a fortnight. <laughs> I got this little pot belly because I like didn't exercise anymore. I was eating junk. It's tough. It was really tough. It's uh, I was going to say fond memories, but not really painful memories. But yeah, it's in- it's interesting, isn't it? Useful lessons, though. I don't mean to gloss over the, the the I'm sure the horrible sleepless nights you had at the time, but brilliantly useful lessons. Yeah, absolutely. I have a question for you, actually. So you started '08. I started '07. So very very similar time. Lending got harder and harder and harder all the way through. My, my recollection is it only loosened up in 2010. How many deals did you do? How did you do them in that time? Because, and we'll come on to this, this is one of my later questions, but I, I see the current environment as probably the closest we've had since then. But not as bad. I mean, I know I, know I sound like an OG or old timer, but this environment compared to that environment is is like a little bit choppy. That environment was like, woohoo, you know. To, so my numbers were in my first year, this is so cute. In my first year, I did three deals because remember, I was not going into this as a business. I was purely as a mother wanting to provide a, an umbrella of security for my family. In the first, And then in the next six months, so that was kind of nerves. And I'd taken 18 months of reading books and writing a beautiful business plan. Yeah. 18 months before you did your first deal. Yeah. I'm a tortoise. I like to know things. I like to be really care not careful. I'm a risk taker like any good entrepreneur, but I really like to know what I'm talking about before I move into something. So I had a 16 page business plan that was perfection on paper and actually did me the world of good because it meant that when I went into it, I I'd really read around the subject. So I didn't have practical knowledge apart from doing my own houses up, but I had, and I'd done three of them um, when the kids were asleep. I had really good theoretical knowledge. So that kind of move to to quickly understand, oh, heck, (laughs) you know, like the funding problems. I wasn't scratching my head trying to find out what was happening. I'd already really researched it because bear in mind, I had no plan B. So three houses in the first year, four houses in the next six months, and then 48 houses in the, in the following 12 months. And I was annoyed because my target was 60. Do you notice the difference? I, the three and the four were a little tiny bit. I took out 60 grand off my own mortgage. And then I worked with investors one-on-one. And then I went, okay, deal packaging and I'm buying as well. And flipping as well. Um, in fact, I walked past the, the the flat that I flipped my very first joint venture with a great uh, investor only last month and met the lady who now owns it. because so I thought I'll knock on the door and say hi. Um, so I think that just shows the difference in escalation and scalability when you bring in investors. So I kind of nailed how to find discounted deals, started to go, oh, I've run out of money, bring in investors on a one-to-one for me, and then went, right, let's scale this thing. Let's go. So although 48 deals sounds great, 
I was annoyed because my target was 60. Investing in Bristol now, I haven't had a single client in Bristol. So I don't know that area as well as, as others. But my impression is it's done way better than average over that time. Was that just pure luck because you lived there or did you select that as your goldmine area? I tend to have rules and I tend to occasionally deviate, but mainly stick to my rules once I rinse and repeat something. I like to get to know something and then rinse and repeat it. So my rule was, A, only invest in a good economic area, which Bristol is, because they've got two universities, about five colleges. The economy is sliced up, so there's no heavy reliance on one economy. And it's a tertiary economy. It's not primary or secondary primarily, you know, like coal mines. Um, if the coal mine goes, the whole village is is in trouble, potentially. And then the other rule was invest local. Now, if I lived in an area that was really struggling financially, I might not invest local, but because I lived in Bristol, now, for example, I, I don't manage any of my own properties. I have an amazing letting agent that does it now. That was only a handover in the last three years, by the way, because it took me a while to want to, to be able to do that. They'll put the property out at very good rental and they'll close the waiting list within four hours of advertising it. And that's the rental market in Bristol, but also high quality properties. But Bristol at the time, you were hearing people pop talking going, oh, you'll never get a deal in Bristol. It's like people saying you'll never get a deal in central London. Of course you will. It's just maths. It's just statistics. And so that just made me think, well, I'm going to try harder then, aren't I? <laughs> Excellent. I love it. I love it. So what are your plans now, having mentioned this environment, but also for the next 10 years? What, what are you looking to do? Are you investing in Spain? Are you putting your feet up? Well, I don't know, because um, we've only met ourselves uh, briefly for five minutes. And I, I was a bit like, right, where's Frank Clegg? Come on. Well, I want to go meet him. By the way, I should probably explain. This is about two hours into a free bar of an evening. <laughs> I, I remember us meeting, but we could have chatted about anything. <laughs> <laughs> I went home after that, but I think you possibly didn't. <laughs> oh, I absolutely didn't. And I regretted it in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a good event. And I was glad to at least kind of put a name to the face and, and said hi to you. And I was really looking forward to coming on today. But we probably don't know that much about uh, each other yet. My plans two and a half years ago, or just before COVID, was to go take a sabbatical for six months, hire a villa in Bali, you know, just go and chill. And so I wound down my live training, which I've been doing for over a decade, very much enjoyed it. But when you've got commitment to people, you have to plan a year in ahead because you can't stop a commitment to somebody. And then I changed the structure of my business, put everything online. And then Frank, um, not to surprise you with your morning coffee, but I then got diagnosed, are you ready? With one, two, three totally independent and totally separate cancers in 2021. I know it was a bit of- Honestly. Uh, yes, but, and partly because I approached it as an entrepreneur. And so my, my theory being, well, once you've got something, let's figure out if there's any other problems. And so let's not talk too much about our gorgeous but unable to cope NHS. Um, my logic was, well, darn about the villa in Bali. But I mean, we had COVID anyway. So if you're going to get cancer and if you're going to get three of them, you might as well block it and do it, do it wholesale instead of retail. And you might as well do it in a pandemic because you can't go anywhere anyway. I had a lot of treatments and stuff and it was a fairly dangerous time. Let me be quite frank with you. But my other thinking was, well, my job is to play the part of the good patient. So how do I increase my immunity? How do I increase my killer T cells? How do I increase my health? I mean, I was already really healthy. You know, there was no visible signs at all. And so I took two and a half years off, Frank. Uh, I also spent over a hundred grand on my own health care. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. Yeah, because if you were getting cancer treatment during COVID, <laughs> you're in the minority, weren't you? So, yeah. Yes, yes. And we hear all the, I mean, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. We hear all the news items about the NHS. And whilst there are incredible people within it, uh, that is absolutely my lived experience. So within six months, I switched to Royal Marsden, which is the lead, what's well, the 11th best cancer hospital in the world, the best in Europe. If you're going to have cancer, you go, you, you know, like an entrepreneur, you go to the best place and you say, so I've had two and a half years off, fully supported by property. My income didn't dip. It, my property's just chicked along very nicely. You know, my bookkeeper uh, continued to work with me. And so it meant I had no financial worries and, and um, I had a major war chest in case anything difficult happened. 
because I did ask the nurse, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm going to approach it as an entrepreneur. I want to know the scenario. So you have a three and a half week wait in the NHS, I did, between diagnosis and staging. So for three and a half weeks, you don't know if it's going to be quite easy to deal with this or if this is going to be terminal. And that surely tests your brain and surely tests your character and surely tests how much you love yourself. You know, and I definitely like myself enough to say, come on, babe, we've got this. And within that, I wanted to understand the scope. And the nurse said, well, if you are terminal, we stop treating you. Not me, honey. (laughs) So I just made sure I had a major war chest. So I'm just back to work. This is my fourth week back at work. There you go. I've had my two and a half year sabbatical, though it wasn't the spa treatment in Bali that I envisaged. It It was absolutely spa, you know, massage, hypnotherapy for the fear, acupuncture, meditation, obviously living here half the time, like I go to the sea every day, gym two, three times a week, you know, lots of love and affection from friends and amazing food. So whilst there was an element of fear, I've done spa for two and a half years uh, and I'm through, I'm completely through. So now my plans are uh, a number of things. It's old fashioned, but I'm paying off my houses. So number one, because I've built, I think there are three stages, aren't there? The acquisition, the, the paying off, and then the going back out there with cash. And I'm on stage two and three. So I've already got houses paid off. I'm going to continue to focus on paying off houses with profits. Number two, I'm buying commercial in the UK and I'm going to buy residential here in Barcelona. My assessment, sadly, is that with, you know, whatever we think politically, all that's happening with Brexit, uh, the, the, the value of the pound versus the value of the euro is going down and I I want to build a second portfolio out here in Spain. And then number three, I mean, I adore this flat. It's gorgeous. It's renovated. I own it cash and never have a mortgage on it. But I've just decided I fancy finding a, a, an infill plot and building an amazing house. So I keep just wandering around my local area going, ooh. So commercial UK, uh, residential Barcelona, uh, and then an infill plot here, but all in good time. You know? And right now I'm an investor with other people because obviously in the last couple of years, I didn't do any, uh, any property development because my job was to be a great patient and increase my immunity. And that meant zero stress. And as we both know, property can bring a little bit of stress. That intrigues me. I understand the diversification from UK residential to overseas residential and UK commercial. I understand the diversification from buying for yourself to deal packaging to training people. That, that all makes sense. But that's very property centric. Have you not been tempted to go in, because you clearly have many business skills, really successful entrepreneur, have you not been tempted to go into other industries and other sectors? No, that's a super question. No. I mean, years ago, I ran a fair trade business and had five shops, but that was in my 20s. No, I'm very much of the, and my son right now is involved in setting up art, art exhibitions for NFTs and you know, he's speaking at a conference in Amsterdam and I'm a bit like, what? <laughs> Trying to catch up with him as he explains it in words of one syllable, rolling his eyes at me, you know. But no, at the moment, my thinking is get into something that you know and do it really well, but whilst mitigating the risks. So yeah. rather than scattergunning, because I do think there are two types of entrepreneurs, aren't there, Frank? There's the lifestyle entrepreneur and then there's the empire builder. And as much as I've got a very nice portfolio, I'm still in the category. I mean, I'm nine minutes from the beach. We know where I am. I'm in, I'm in the lifestyle. You know, my, my goal in the beginning was to spend more time with my family. So my son literally lives around the corner and brings his washing here. <laughs> Not for me to do because I want to raise him as, a, you know, as an equal guy, but because his flat hasn't got a washing machine and mine does. You know, so I'm very much about life and the joyfulness of it. But I'm also very interested in good work done well. And for me, good work done well is depth, you know. So so I have an online business, online education business, and and it's good work done well. The good property company. We're almost uh, siblings because we're ethical property partners and you're the good property company. It's good. I like it. It is interesting. So... I understand where you've come from and where you're going to, and that, and that makes sense, the, the depth and the risk mitigation within property. What mistakes do you see investors make? What are your biggest, let's say, the biggest mistake that a newbie investor makes, biggest 
think that a five to 10 property portfolio landlord makes, so they've dipped their toe in the water. And the biggest mistake that a full-time investor, let's say 25 properties plus investor makes, what's your experience on those three? And then I, I wouldn't mind hearing yours as well, actually. And also your view on what you, your assessment, if you like, on my investing strategy, what makes sense and what doesn't would be really cool to hear. So, okay, let's start with the, the bigger ladies and lads. And often, lads, the bigger mistake that somebody that's done maybe 25 plus properties is, I mean this with total kindness, because it is more possibly men than ladies, and I d- please don't keep it off men when you're listening to me, is the chest goes out, you know, and then they move from maybe 25 properties, 25 to 50 properties, to building 165 flats. And like, and, and wherein is the growth pattern that you, you know, like, as if you were weightlifting, you've built up the muscle, the sinew, the bone, you know, you know, the, the, the eating patterns. How are you able to move from 25 to 50 properties to building 165 flats in one go? Your team is going to be too small in their experience. Your architect will not be knowledgeable and you don't have the deep pockets to save the project if it goes wrong. And I've seen people I really admire and respect fall out. And it's out. likely to go wrong the first time you've ever done this. And you, you're not you're not doing it for the fifty fifth time. You're doing it for the first time. Yeah, that's right. And what they don't do, because of course, um, property entrepreneurs who kind of come up the scramble way, like I, I suppose in some ways you and I have done. I don't, I'm not being derogatory to us, but you know we've bootstrapped up. We've not brought in senior level, experienced, quality people on you know hundred grand salaries to advise us on our on our business. And that's kind of what you're needing in that scenario. So I've seen some really competent property investors have pride come into their business a little bit too much. Uh, And that's always pained me because I thought, you guys are good, but I can feel this is going to be a slow motion car crash. And I hope it isn't, but sure enough, it was. Yeah, I was actually presenting at um, Expert Empires uh, about three weeks ago, something like that. And I was on after Mark Homer and he was talking about his development in Peterborough, largest one that he and Rob have ever done. And I know some of the background privately from Mark and, and then he was sharing some of the, the the issues that they've had. But I don't believe, and they're very successful at uh, property investors, deep pockets, loads of experience. You know, I think they manage about a thousand properties or so, own hundreds. When you look at everything that went wrong, and, and that was clearly the biggest development they've ever done, but they've done developments, they've done title splitting, you know, et cetera. When you look at everything that went wrong, I'm not sure that one of them on their own could have weathered it. Like some of the stuff, their builder went pop. So Mark had to step in and project manage the whole development. In a pandemic with a new child, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. But I'm not sure Rob would have had the skills to do that. But equally, in Rob's own words, and he said this publicly, um, he got caught with his trousers down because they started that development and then went into the pandemic. And so Rob's ability to bring the cash in and to monetize their training business <laughs> helped them to to survive what for a lot would have been a, a fatal change of events, completely unforeseen. And so when you look at two guys that are as capable, as well-resourced, as they are, and they've not got through by the skin of their teeth, but but haven't sailed through it, you think, yeah, less people or, or um, would have struggled, yeah. And, and I do think that Mark Homer's um, business acumen is highly competent. I didn't know this until um, his presentation. He raised a bond on that. He went to London and raised a bond. I think it was a £19 million bond at, I want to say, 2.7% fixed for 11 years. Like a, I, I wrote down <laughs> big development raise a bond. <laughs> like it never even occurred to me. So who, how many people think of that when they're doing their first deal? Like your guy that's done fifty deals and then tries to build a hundred flats is not going to even know that bonds exist. It, aren't even going to know that they can go do that. But then to actually pull it off and raise, you know, nineteen million quid is is impressive. So that's. The experienced ones. So I have seen yours and it, and it's almost like I was playing with my dad when I was eight and he kicked a rugby ball really high for me. I was in West Wales and he kicked a rugby ball really high and he said, try and catch it. And I caught it. And he said, wow, well done. If you can do that a second time, I'll give you 50p. 
So he kicked it really high and I caught it. And um, he said, right, double or quits. If you catch it again, I'll give you a pound. But if you drop it, it's nothing. So I did it. I got to eight pounds. And like, and so he kicked it really high and I, I dropped it. And, and it was a really good lesson for me. But that's what I see experienced people do a lot is they bet the whole farm. They make it work. And sometimes it's because they can go and hustle or they've got a day job or whatever. But even if it's just through pure skill, if you keep betting the farm every time, you're, you're going you're gonna to come up quits at some point. And it's almost guaranteed that they're going to go bankrupt because they keep risking everything, the probabilities. I see that quite a lot, actually, where it's almost, it, it does come from pride and it is interesting. I can't think of a single woman that has done this, but I can think of many men. And it's almost like they are testing themselves but but are going to come unstuck and I, I i've got clients in northern ireland and obviously they went through the celtic tiger so a lot of those clients have gone bankrupt they lost 60 percent of their property values over there and that's a hard storm to weather but that going bankrupt it sets some of them back 15 years they have to start emotionally some of them never start again so that's what i've seen a lot um yeah i don't know that they're quite closely related our two answers actually it is isn't it i think i i was really fortunate now it's awful but i've forgotten the chap's name but in the very beginning i you, you know you're doing loads of networking and this very incredibly helpful guy you know in the kind of tweed jacket and very well dressed just came for coffee at my house because i i didn't ever used to go to cafes a because i just didn't want to spend the money <laughs> Like now I would, but at the time you're like every penny, every penny is going into this business. And B, because it was more efficient that they would meet me at my house. Well, actually it was probably more the efficiency. I didn't want to spend 20 minutes going to a cafe, which if somebody's listening, that's how much you're hustling at the time. He was super kind and I'd met him. At- I love how you say if someone's listening. I hope we've got someone listening. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is if they're going, oh, that's a point I should maybe consider. It's about managing your time because your time is so much more important than your money. And I wasn't going to waste an hour traveling to a cafe there and back for every meeting. No, they come to me in and out. Off we go. And this chap had bought 280 properties up in Newcastle. And unfortunately for him in his mid 50s had lost a lot. He just overextended himself. And he was actually an incredibly thoughtful human being because he had no reason to come and work with me. I was kind of a newbie startup. I couldn't give him very much. And he just came in and said, I want to, I want to teach you a lesson. And not, I want to teach you a lesson, keep you down. I want to teach you a lesson of never overextending. And it was a read. And he actually, unfortunately, had lost his marriage and, you know, his family had broken up. Whilst that didn't work to keep me small, it enabled me to keep being very mindful of risk. So the middle people, uh, and I see this a lot as well, it's all about growth, isn't it? They forget that the 25 people, they forget that what got them to 25 won't get them to the next stage. So they, and what got them to 25 is probably a lot of hard work, some multiple sleepless nights, lots of personal relationships, and occasionally skidding in at the last minute and saving it before it drops, as well as building competent teams of builders that can do 50 to 250 grand developments. So basically, they are still significantly the bottleneck, uh, I find. Uh, when I work with people. So it's about how do I take myself out of this? So I had a two and a half year sabbatical where I did a few webinars just for fun, but I basically didn't work. And obviously I was also experiencing quite a lot of kind of psychological shocks when you were getting different diagnoses and cancer not always an easy pathway. And you think that the doctors can tell you what's what, job done, tick, no. You know, there's lots of lots of little extras that come and slap in that are quite difficult to deal with. So there was no way I could have a focus on my business. Not if I wanted to be well, in my opinion. And you notice my business didn't drop because I had already worked a way of getting myself out of my own way. So a lot of automation, a lot of operation processes, a lot of manuals. Um, so that I could be, by and large, I mean, obviously the business didn't grow, but I could be removed from the business and my income didn't drop. And I think the problem is the middle people get to that point and what got them there won't get them to either the life they then want or the next stage of growth 
but they don't want to take the time, the boring old time to kind of create those ops manuals, to put in the automation. You know, we put in Arthur online and yeah, it took us six months. Now, Arthur online are great. I paid them to implement it for us, but it still took us a while to kind of put, you know, got a lot of properties. So to, to push across all the data. And I think it's really important that they kind of run the middle distance and then they take a breather automate, outsource, you know, eliminate, automate, delegate, and uh, or outsource, then delegate, and then go for the next pay, next growth spurt. What do you think about middle people? Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking, really, what I've seen the most is two things, actually. One is repeating the same thing over and over. So getting, let's say, 10 property, doing 10 hundred grand two bedroom terraces in Nottingham, let's say. And they're all made, they're all bringing in 600 quid a month and they're all making 150 net before tax and thinking that's the, that's the model. And that might have taken a, a traditional investor seven years or something like that. And they've had a job on, on the side. So that actually is, is quite successful investing in my book. You know, most people don't get a portfolio of 10 properties. They've clearly lived on less than they're earning in their day job and they've funneled that into property. So, so they, they've had a successful seven years and have substantially improved their net worth. They might have trebled their net worth, quadrupled it in that period of time. But then they go and do another 10. But now they are better and of course, they've got more income now, more cash flow. Perhaps they start getting them at 5% below or 10% below. So now they go and do another 10, but it takes them three years. What was good now becomes quite unstable because if they do a third 10 and it's in the same area and they do it with the same one letting agent and their mortgage brokers recommending the same products. And you've probably come across clients that had Mortgage Express uh, mortgages, but they had 50 of them. Yes, I did. I did have one literally with 50 Mortgage Express. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden, they're geographically exposed. So the, the coal mine closes or HS2 comes through the middle of the town or, you know, there's, and, and he, I, I talk about black swan events. And, you know, these are all black swan events, which are highly unlikely. But actually, the likelihood of you getting hit by one of them in your career is really high, if not, you know, almost inevitable. And, and it's a bit like um, I had some clients that actually joined me because they were in a pickle when COVID hit. They had all their properties were HMOs. Well, COVID decimated the HMO market. I had them at 40%, not yours. Well, it's at least... They, they were like at 40% occupancy. They were really struggling. They had them all in, in certain areas. They And at one point, um, England was categorizing, weren't they, areas? So you're level three or level two or level one, and that had an impact and stuff. And so I think being over-specialized and having gone from a position where, let's say someone's earning five grand a month in their day job, well, having 10 buy to lets is is that that's really safe but when you get to 30 bytes less your five grand a month can't support them now if they're all carbon copies of each other and people say you know systemize and then rinse and repeat to an extent absolutely but you have to have one eye on risk mitigation and, and i think it's missing that and and the and the real risky thing is let's say it takes them 20 years and they've got 40 properties and and i'm buying some portfolios at the moment just like this where people are in their 70s and they've done exactly that. Now, for my portfolio, I can take theirs and it fits quite neatly into mine. And mine's still nice and diversified. And I know being really diversified is less efficient and less profitable, but it's way safer. You said you, earlier um, you're not risk averse. I think you said or something like that. Or you're balanced in your approach. I actually am quite risk averse. And, and so that diversification really, really suits me. But I think that person that's done 30 or 40 years investing, they think they've got 30 or 40 years experience. But actually, one year that they've repeated 39 times and they're not exper very experienced at all. So I think that's the biggest mistake I see with, with people that have done five or 10 and they go and do the next 20 or 30 the same. And that makes I, I liken it to um, 
if I look at my portfolio, it's like a pyramid. I've got so many different elements of it. You know, I, I foresee that um, holiday less uh, and service accommodation is going to become more highly regulated. I'm not really worried about that because it's about 15% of my portfolio. And in COVID, my HMOs, interestingly, some of them were absolutely fine and some of them really struggled, which is, I think it meant perhaps it's different parts of the country or parts of the country, parts of the country where my portfolio have bought in uh, selective licensing and, and other areas haven't, et cetera. So I think I'm quite stable. Whereas that investor that I've just described, they've almost, they've got a, a foundation. And when the portfolio was this big, they were stable. But they've just gone like that. And now it's like the Lean Tower of Pisa. It's on the same foundation, but it's five times as high. So, yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> and I think that's about being nimble. Briefly on HMOs, well, when COVID hit, I shut my office down because we owned an office uh, two weeks before COVID because I didn't want my team spreading COVID to other people. Uh, it was fascinating because I still had two people who were like, no, I'm still going to the office. And you're like, no, <laughs> you're not. <laughs> you're coming on a bus. <laughs> There's grannies on the bus. You're not. You're not. Uh, you can do what you want in your own time, but you're not doing it in my work time. Um, and I shut my service accommodation business down a week before we got shut down, turned it all to single lets and got every single one of them rented out as a single let. And then during COVID with HMOs, now Bristol, of course, is a strong economic area. So we're, we, you know, we've got a wind in our sails anyway. But we did have people kind of, do you remember it was all, you know, tenants don't need to pay their rent kind of things across the news. And that was a little bit worrying. And and we just, we used to send them on a daily basis emails with job listings. I don't mean here is a job, apply for it. But here are 10 job sites with 250 jobs on them each. Most of them were Amazon drivers, weren't they? Because people were getting, and it was basically, we want to be very clear to you that you have to pay your rent because you're on a contract with us and there is no discussion. I mean, absolutely zero discussion. However, we're going to help you more at the moment. And every single day we were sending 10 job sites with 250 jobs on them each or whatever the heck it was, you know, so the two and a half thousand jobs to apply for on a daily basis. There ain't no excuse to not pay your rent because there's still jobs. But the other thing I think that, and, and, and I fell prey to this it, it, during my development is you rinse and repeat. And I do think rinse and repeating in some ways is a good thing, but then you don't get the added value out of your current properties. So I think when, it, oh, it's next Thursday, because of course, uh, next Thursday, I'm meeting with a chap. Now, before COVID, I got planning permission to to turn a bunch of my larger houses into more profitable units. So sometimes when somebody's kind of doing 25, 30, 35, 40, et cetera, you're like, way, this is my direction. Well, how about looking at what you've got? What's your, what's your revenue per square foot? And how do you increase your revenue per you square know, foot? You know, the funny thing, uh, Suzanne, and this will make you laugh, it's not gone out yet, but I know the order of my podcast episodes. And the one before this one is on sweating your assets which is such a coincidence. So yeah, guys, if you like what Susanna's saying, listen to last week's episode. So <laughs> I couldn't agree more because there's no acquisition costs and they, we've already got it. So yeah. And you can do it within your own time frame, you know, all the rest of it. So I think it's really important. And the, again, if I go back to my first point, the person has sometimes got themselves to be the bottleneck, so they're far too busy, so they can't take a step back find the best person to help them with planning for, you know, because architects have always been a ba the bane of my life. I've always found the hardest role to work with in property has been an architect. This is just my pure experience. So please, if you're an architect, you can, you can email me and go, Suze, I'm not one of that. By and large, although I've worked with some amazing architects, I've really had to shed some architects who are sort of big picture people, but not technical detail people. And actually, I need you to be able to roll your sleeves up and I need you to understand the data you're dealing with and, and make sure the census that you're working for, if it's an HMO application, is not 20 years out of date because that's illogical. You know, and, and if you think I'm going to pay you two and a half grand for an application for an HMO when you use 20-year-old data census, you've got a dream, my lovely architect. Because an architect, a great architect, is a combination of creativity and realism, isn't it? And sometimes the creativity is a little bit too strong, and occasionally the realism is a little bit too strong. So I found them, when you get a good architect, 
keep them close. Okay, so, so yes, sweating the assets, as you say, going too, too thin. And what I say is being the bottleneck in your own business, because what got you to here is not going to get you to the next place. And then the beginner. Oh, number one, just not believing it can happen. I didn't really believe in mindset. I was like, come on, let's go. Let's make this thing happen. I want to I understand the technical detail. But as I have a longer distance away from the start point, I really understand that mindset really makes a huge difference. Whereas at the time I was a bit like, stop your woo-woo and start lending me money, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, this morning, some chap on Instagram, I, I do daily reels and my friend Arthur and I put, well, we, we did an interview, we, we put up a reel. And I in that reel, I was saying, I used to think that the people at the front of the stage, the gurus were telling lies about finding discounted deals. And then darn, we went and did 200 of them. So I realized they were probably not. And this guy, bless his cotton socks, just te texted me. I caught it this morning saying, um, oh, I think they're all lying. And you're like, did you not understand the point of that reel? Which was, sure, some people probably exaggerate. Let's not get into that because it's quite a toxic subject anyway. But actually, the reality is if you follow a process and understand how to get discounted deals, and you know that it's possible, you'll just rinse and repeat that. So it's actually moving from this can't be done to this can be done. And therefore, if they've done it, how can do it? And how did they do it? What's the system I follow? Mindset number one. And then and then the second one is not working with investors early enough because everybody runs out of cash. And the third one is believing a deal is a deal because you want to persuade yourself it's a deal rather than just doing the maths and going, it's just not quite good enough. It's better than if I was buying it as a, as a generalist, but it's not good enough as a professional. So get your hands off the deal. Move on. You know, because you want to put the same amount into work and into a fairly rubbish deal as a good deal, and you're going to make three times the profit. Those are my three mindset deals and investors for beginners. How about you? My biggest one is behaving based on where they're coming from rather than where they want to get to. And what I mean by that, and it, it encompasses mindset, but the specifically what I teach is a very simple rule of thumb which is, if you said to me now, Frank, you know, at the end of this, I'd like to talk to you for two minutes um, because a friend of mine's in trouble. And obviously you wouldn't say this because you're, you're sophisticated and you could help them. But a friend, of I, this is probably, you know, I, I probably get 10% of my deals from people just coming to me saying, Frank, a friend of mine's got this property problem. Can you help? So some, someone says that, am I going to spend five minutes talking to that person about their friend's property? Is it worth five minutes of my time? Absolutely. So yeah, no problem at all. How can I help? And they'll give me some information. And based on that, some people will go, oh, like you've just said, there's a, there's a deal here. And um, let me go view the property. You know, let, let, what's, what's the address? And they'll go and, and they'll do two hours preparation and they'll go and spend two hours with the person. Whereas I'm thinking the likelihood is I can just give some advice and help them or that they might have no hope, you know, they're a hundred grand underwater and they're losing 10 grand a month. And <laughs> I can't think of a solution, which is pretty rare, but, but, you know, possible, or they're not motivated enough for me to be able to buy from them. You know, the, the likelihood is 97% chance. If someone's come to me, it's a bit higher than normal, but probably 3% chance I'm going to end up helping this person and doing a deal. So I'll give it five minutes or 10 minutes. And, and then I'll give them my number and say, get them to give me a call. I, I don't want to spend three times trying to get hold of them. They can just call me, leave a voice note. If I don't pick up, I will call you back. So now is it, if they called me, is it worth, you know, most of my explore, we call them telephone fact finds, they're, they're typically 10 to 15 minutes. Is it worth 10 to 15 minutes of my time? Absolutely is, because this is a motivated person who has taken the time to phone me. 10 to 15 minutes of my time, because now maybe there's an 8% chance I can do the deal. And what I'm talking about is the percentage chance of the deal happening. And, you know, my average deal is probably 160 grand property that I pick up for 110, 120. So there's 40 odd grand, 50 grand in most of my deals equity, how much time am I willing to invest in that? And what I say to people is, if, if there's a 10% chance of you doing the deal, you've got to do 10 of them. So the person that spent four hours on a 1% chance deal, because it was so early, that's 400 hours. Is it worth you spending 400 hours? You know, that's three months of work in order to earn 20K or 30K or 40K. And it, it absolutely isn't for, for me. And, and what they don't know at that point is it's probably a 0.1% deal. 
So now it's 4,000 hours. So I think that's the biggest mistake, over-servicing opportunities that aren't worthy of your time. Can I give you another, um, I, I don't even want to call it a beginner mistake, but, but a behavioral pattern I see a lot. So in property, in order for us to grow, unless you're born with your lovely silver spoon in your mouth, the chances are at some point you're going to have to work with investors, whether you do joint ventures or whether they lend you money. I mean, you talked about Mark Homer going to raise a bond, you know, deeply experienced. It's a JV at some level, isn't it? In, indeed. Although 2.7%. I mean, I remember sitting in the car with him a long time ago and going, you're paying how much to you, private investors? Mark, your brand is bigger than mine. Like, why are you paying, you know? Uh, so we had a, a really interesting conversation about that. So, but, but at some point, you're going to have to work private investors. And exactly the same process I see with people when they go to a property event. So I don't know, just say there's 40 people in the room, right? And what happens is a person who's quite new to this whole process goes in and has three deep conversations. The chances are the person who's going to be your investor is quiet. Like, 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 did you notice in this whole conversation about deals and mistakes, I dropped in very, very quietly. In the last three years of having gone, I mean, I had six operations, chemo, radiotherapy. I was an investor in other people's deals. I said it once. So even the fact that I moved from investing myself to investing in others was a one two second conversation uh, it, throughout this entire, you know, 45 minute hour long podcast. So your investor is going to be quiet. Your investor is going to observe behavior and your investor doesn't really need a deep conversation on the night because if they're going to a property event to find a, a, a people to work with, they just want to get followed up and serviced. Yeah. And so so I used to clean up. I mean, Simon Zuzzi, again, someone else I really respect. Ben and Barry years and years ago used to run the Bristol Pin. And I literally remember seeing him kind of gently, but with humor, slightly cough them on the side of the head and go and just went, mate, she cleaned up in your room. You know, and they're good guys, but they organized everybody for me. And I just went in and had two minute conversation with every single person. I grabbed every single business card and then I followed up the next day for five days. So it's the same thing on investors as deals. We're, what we're observing is the same behavior. There's a one in 10 people has money. One in two will say yes to you if you get them to five to nine touch points. So there's a one in 20 chance that someone you meet at a property event will invest in you. So what's your job? To collect all 40 business cards because you've got two investors. There's 100 grand in the room on average for you. Go get them. Or to go be a little bit naive and talk to three people Seeing as you have to talk to 20 people before, so, so you're going to have to do like, oh, eight, I've, my math is seven, eight meetings. You go once a month. So now it's a year to find one. Don't do <laughs> yeah. it. You know, and I absolutely did. I raised millions and millions of pounds, which is obviously all paid back now by following the same kind of light touch process. And, and I was open about it. We're both here to meet. I would love to have a conversation with you. What's your time frame? What's your objective? And how much is your pot? And I would get that out of them within two, two and a half minutes. And then I would say, I will call you. Or I'd book something in the diary straight away. And I remember one of my mentees, uh, James, it, he and I both met up in Cardiff. I think there were 60 something people in the room, James, if you're listening. And I was like, right, I'll race you. And we just, and it was, I didn't need to raise money by that point, but I was just doing it to not teach him, but to demonstrate. And it was, it, so the whole night we were like checking each other out going, how many have you got? And of course, I didn't mean of course, but be, to be fair, I was very practiced at it. And this was his first time. And of course, I ended up with like most of the room. I mean, I used to, when I was a speaker, I used to have two volunteers. They weren't really there to assist your queenship. They were entirely there to pick up business cards. Uh, uh, of course they were. That was the job. So same thing. The other part of the equation, isn't it? Go light, go fast, follow There's up. There's a lot of parallels because you probably don't know this about me, but I ran a BNI region for three years. And so I taught networking and we talk about the rule of threes. The rule of threes is if, if, a, if a cold caller phones you, you give them about three seconds. They have to be exceptionally good to capture your interest in three seconds before you get rid of them. But when you're in front of someone and they say, you know, what do you do? They give you 30 seconds. If you talk for two minutes on, you know, what do you do? They're, they're bored. They want to leave. But 30 seconds. And then, and then if you interest them enough in 30 seconds. So with my clients, I practice that 30 seconds, 15 seconds of, because what 
the, your objective there is to get them to ask you another question. And then you've got three minutes. And what you mustn't do is go from the three minutes and you've got synergy and you're really interested in, in them and they're interested in you and there's some, there's some potential into the 30-minute coffee. No, that's for later. Exactly. And, and what they do is they have the two or three 30 minutes and they think, oh, I've had some brilliant conversations, but it's three of them. It's so interesting. Uh, this is exactly what I teach. Um, whereas what they should do is have multiple three minutes and then either book in the 30 minutes or follow up afterwards, which is exactly what I teach. So interesting. I, th- I feel like we could talk for hours. I think uh, we could. Uh, I think had we not just had a kind of glancing meeting at that event, we probably would have sat in a corner and just, yes. Well, next time we meet up physically, that would be fab. My biggest investor who lent me millions was a very understated chap in kind of nice shoes, reasonable trousers, a jacket and a jumper. And he just went, um, here's my card. And if I hadn't had a follow-up process, I wouldn't have ever known. And and he used to give me amazing business advice. You know, he was just kind of enjoyed all the entrepreneurial buzz of me coming in and then give me lots of advice. We'd talk about families because his children were the same age as mine. And then we would cut a deal, even though we obviously backed it up always with legals. I knew and he knew we were solid once we'd agreed on something and shaken it, shook on it, usually on the back of a napkin at the beginning, and then obviously turned into legals. And I only, if you like, got him because I followed up my process, which is have card, follow up and follow up five times. And if they don't answer after the fifth time, then don't be a stalker and and call them six. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Susanna, if people have liked what you said today, and I'm sure they have, what's the best way of them finding out more about you and what you do? So I guess there's a couple of ways. If they want more content to consume, they're... um, We've had almost 2 million views at the moment on the YouTube channel, which is smartly named Susanna Cole, The Good Property Company. So you'll be able to find it, guys. And it's divided into playlists for you guys. So that will give you kind of quite a lot of in-depth information if if you're setting out. Or if people, like I have online education, which is very good quality, obviously everything I've got transferred across and tons of free stuff as well on the website, which is thegoodpropertycompany.co.uk. And they can download like a hundred page pack for free and stuff like that. So that's probably the first way or or just any of the socials. I'm fairly active now. I mean, I've chilled for a couple of years, but I'm fairly active now. Amazing. It's been brilliant to chat, Susanna. Really nice to, uh, to have you on. Isn't it interesting how many parallels and te- like, so we don't know each other that well, but I, I get the feeling that's probably going to change over time now. But isn't it interesting that the two of us who've both been able to navigate, you know, quite difficult economic circumstances and occasional mistakes, should we just call it that, or losing, you know, five grand a month, which must have been quite tough at the time and all the screw ups I've done. Isn't it interesting that we've got, broadly speaking, a similar perception of the step-by-step processes to be successful in property. Quite interesting. So is is that us or is that because that's probably the way that property works for people? I think it's the benefit of experience. I, I feel quite envious and I'm sure you're the same for some of my clients because they don't have to make all the mistakes I've made. They get to shortcuts. And I was like, if only I had someone uh, that, uh, and, and to be honest, the reason I didn't have someone uh, mentor me is because I wasn't ready to back myself. I wasn't ready to put the money down, which was ego. Interestingly, I think I've become less egotistical as time's gone on, which is which is the opposite of what we were talking about. But uh, yeah, fascinating. Suzanne, it's been lovely to have you on. Thank you so much, guys. If you would like to find out more about Suzanne, I've been on her website and had a look at her uh, materials, etc. They are world class. So uh, do go check her out. Susanna, thank you so much. Enjoy Barcelona. I will. I might go for a swim later on. (laughs) I love it. You take care. Cheers, guys. Until next time, happy investing. Sophisticated Property Investing, a podcast brought to you by Ethical Property Partners, the experts in sophisticated property investment.